All right. Well, last week we talked about creation, so it's a good week to talk about sin. Anybody guilty? Raise your hand if you've ever sinned. That's good because the Bible said all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, um, a lot of life is about perspective. And if you think about your life, think about how many times you've had a perspective on something and you thought, well, I'm right on that. And then someone shows you a different perspective and you go, I'm wrong on that. And what happened? It was exactly the same thing. Part of what happens is what's called progressive revelation in the life of a Christian. And that means that as you live out your Christian life, the Holy Spirit is constantly revealing himself to you in new and fresh ways. He's opening up the scripture to you in new and fresh ways. So you begin to see things from a little bit different angle than you saw them before. Kind of reminds me of a story of the little optimist and the little pessimist. Apparently there was this uh, two brothers, they were twins, they lived out in the country, and, and uh, one was a little optimist, one was a little pessimist. And so the one was always up, the other one was always down, and uh, the mother didn't know what to do, so she called the pastor. And the pastor came over and he talked to her and talked to the boys and said, yeah, that's the most pessimistic boy I've ever seen, that's the most optimistic boy I've ever seen in my life. And uh, she said, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, here's Christmas is coming. I want you to go out and I want you to get that little pessimist two of the greatest toys that any boy would ask. She said, oh, really? What would it be? And I said, well, like maybe a, maybe a remote control airplane and a motorcycle would be nice. She said, oh, those are awful expensive gifts. I know, but we got to pick this little guy up. And what about the, the little optimist? What do we get him? She said, you go out into the barnyard and you get a pile of a lot of you-know-what, put it in a box, wrap it up, and put it under the tree. She said, oh, that seems awful cruel. I know, but we got to bring him down. we got to bring this other one up. And so, uh, so on Christmas Day, the pastor decided to go over to the house and see how they were doing, and, and uh, he saw the little pessimist sitting on the front porch with his hands, uh, in, in his head in his hands, just sad as can be. He said, did you have a good Christmas, son? He said, worst Christmas of my life. What did you get? He said, well, I got a remote control airplane, but I crashed it into the barn and it broke. And then I broke the key off in the motorcycle. And I, I, I just don't have a, it's a horrible Christmas. Where's your brother? Oh, he's out in the barnyard acting crazy about something. She, and he goes back there and there's a little optimist. He's clapping his hands. He's all excited and said, did you have a good Christmas? said, best Christmas I've ever had in my life. Well, what did you get? He said, I got a pony. I just got to find him. Well, perspective does make a lot of difference, doesn't it? I want to talk to you a little bit about this idea of the doctrine of sin, which is probably not the most popular topic, and yet we all relate to it because we are sinners by our nature, by our birth, and by our choice. But there's some paradigms that I want you to understand in this world, and as you begin to understand how people think, then you can look at the biblical worldview and understand a bit more about what God says in His Word. First worldview is uh, something called atheism, and you may know someone who denies that there is a God, but the interesting thing is how they deal with the idea of God and evil. So a person who's an atheist will affirm that there's evil in the world, no doubt about it, but the source is never God because there is no God. And so the biggest challenge that the atheist has is how do I explain good in the world apart from evil, and how do I deal with evil in this world that I'm, I'm living in? So, for example, an atheist might say, uh, uh, well, yes, I'm moral, but there's no basis of morality. 
You see, morality, and what's, that is what is right and wrong, comes from the revealed Word of God. It comes from truth. Can't come from society, because society can shift constantly. Can't come from your opinion, because the same thing is true. There's no way to test it back. Another worldview is called pantheism, and you see that really in Hinduism. And that means everything is a god. So it affirms God, but denies evil. In other words, that evil and, and good are kind of behind the same curtain, and they're cooperating in this whole thing called life. So the pantheist sees God in everything, and it's kind of common today when you talk to people who, uh, who will say, well, yes, they'll refer to Mother Earth, as if Mother Earth was a creator or a deity. Or they will say, well, yeah, I don't do that. I don't want to affect that part of it because it's divine. They'll, they'll use spiritual terms to describe everything from a bug to a rock to a tree to anything else that goes on. And because they're trying, to, they're trying to make sense of this idea that either God is in everything or God is everything. It's interesting that Hinduism, for example, in America, functions a lot different than Hinduism in India does. Uh, in America, it's not uncommon to hear someone say, well, I, I really do believe in this whole idea of of, of just regeneration, that I'm coming back into another form, and that there's, there's all these things. But they're always coming back as a person, and usually a pretty predominant person. You know, I was a, I was a priest uh, uh, in this great thing, or I was a king in, a, in another thing, and I just am coming back into another form. But classic Hinduism says you don't only move from this idea of a, of a person to a person, but you move from an inanimate object like a rock. Well, that doesn't really set well with, with American mentality, so we kind of modify it, and we, we make it kind of our own version of what, what it ought to look like. The other one is what we call theism, which is the belief that there is a God. Now, what theism does is it affirms both God and evil. The challenge is, how do we explain evil? If God is good, why does evil prevail in the world? Why are there difficulties? Why are there suffering in the world? Why does your life not go the way it, you want it to go? And the Bible really explains that in one word, sin. That we made a choice to turn away from God and to embrace our own free choice which resulted in a turning away from God and resulted in evil. Now, Norm Geisler wrote this, God cannot produce or promote evil. He can only permit evil. Now, that might beg the question in your mind, well, why does he permit it at all? You see, if God didn't create you with freedom, then you would have that you would really just kind of be always in good mode. You would never be bad. You would always be good, and everybody would be good, and you would create this society where nobody had a choice, where love really doesn't exist on that level, because after all, we're all just good. We all love each other completely all the time, and we would create almost robotic people. And so what God did was he gave you the freedom of choice as a moral agent to say yes or no. Imagine love if love was mandated. For example, psychologists say we can't mandate love. I can't make somebody love me. You can't make somebody love you. They choose to love you. And many times we'll see you know, marriages that kind of fall apart because uh, they say, well, it's just, it's just not the same anymore. Well, what happened along the line was you made a choice to not love. Sometimes when I'm sitting down with a couple or going through some struggles maritally, I, I say, well, did you ever love her? Did you ever love him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I say, well, when you got married, was the design to have a bad marriage? No. Well, what happened? You see, choices along the way is what changes the, the whole perspective on life. 
You know, there's been a lot of attempts to try to classify sin. How about this one? Have you ever heard a white lie? Anybody ever heard of a white lie? Have you ever told a white lie? Well, I looked it up. I said, what is the definition of a white lie? And here's what it says. A minor, polite, or harmless lie. Minor, polite, or harmless lie. And I got to think, well, what would that be like? I thought, well, sometimes you see someone and and you'll say, well, you look good, and you really know that they don't. I think that's a white lie. You think, you know, you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm, I want to be nice. I want to find something here. And they, oh, you look so nice today. And you're thinking, where did she get that dress? Where did he get that suit? Where did he get that pant? Well, you know, what's going on there? Men are always guilty of white lies. I figured it out. It, your wife comes, she says, do you like this dress? Do you like these shoes? You know what happens if you answer truthfully. I remember one time Tammy came home and she said, do you like this dress? And I said, I, I do like that. And she said, I have another one I want to try. Them. I'm only going to keep one. I said, try the other one. I like the first one best. Well, what's wrong with this one? <laughs> well, now I'm forced to tell a white lie. Well, nothing. I think that's a great one. And then she said, well, I think I'm going to keep them both. <laughs> okay, so that's Random House. So I, I look up, here's another definition. A minor or unimportant lie, especially one uttered in the interest of tact or politeness. Well, we do that sometimes, right? We don't really think about it being sin, do we? I mean, it's just a white lie. I looked up, is there a black lie? And there's not. It's just white lies. Because a black lie is just sin, and everybody recognizes it. You know, back, uh, back in the 6th century, uh, Pope Gregory the Great uh, kind of began to pull together this final list of what was called the seven deadly sins. And the idea was that every sin would emanate out of these seven deadly sins. So if, if you had these in your life, you're going to have a, just a, a whole grouping of other sins that you would be guilty of. So let's look at them and see what the list looks like. Well, lust was one of them. That kind of makes sense. How about gluttony? We don't talk about that one too much anymore. It's really not very popular to talk about gluttony, and yet they put it right there in the seven deadly sins. Greed, that makes sense. How about sloth? That is laziness. That's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, you see how culture changes and how some, some people get busier and busier and some people get more slothful over time. And the idea was sloth was seen to be something that was sinful. It was a deadly sin. Wrath, this, this uncontrolled anger. How about envy and pride? Those make sense, don't they? Well, let's go to the Bible and see what it says. Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7. It begins with these words, now the serpent. Now we know a little bit about the serpent from our our background probably, and we know a little bit about the serpent from last week's message on the fall of Satan. But he just kind of appears in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman. Now notice what he does. He doesn't come to Adam. He comes to the woman. And he says this, he asks a question, has God said? And he questions whether God is valid in terms of authority. Has God really said that? Are you sure you heard God right? People sometimes will say, well, I know the Bible says that, but, well, they're doing the same thing. Has God really said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees, of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now what's interesting, if you go back and look what God said, he never said she couldn't touch it. So first is his strategy, Satan's strategy, was get you to question the word of God, and then secondly, 
she is trying to accommodate. She's, trying to, she's already starting this process of sin that is beginning to happen in her life. Because all of a sudden, she's not remembering what God said, and she's adding to what God said, and said, oh yeah, you can't touch it either. It's almost as if saying, you know, God is really not a very fair God, is he? And so the serpent said unto the woman, you will not surely die. Now what does he do? He says, God is lying to you. You're not going to die. If you eat it, if you touch it, you're going to be fine, for God knows that the day that you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened, and you're going to be like God. She was going to exchange innocence for conscience. She was going to operate from this point on, on the basis of what she thought was right. He she said, knowing good from evil. You see, that's how your conscience works. It works as this idea was, I think that's wrong. I'm not sure why, but your conscience is inside of you is telling you, maybe I shouldn't do that. And it's a very helpful tool in our life. But it always will fall short of what God will do by his spirit and by his word. Because the word of God is going to set the standard. Sometimes our conscience can be wrong. I say, you know, you can have your conscience seared. It can be, it can be broken. It can be affected somehow by, by just the way you live out your life. And so it goes on to say, so that when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and she ate. She also gave it to her husband and they ate. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Isn't it interesting, the first thing they noticed, we don't have clothes on. Did they have clothes on before? You see, I believe they were clothed in light. I believe in that condition of innocence, somehow there was a, there was a presence of God about them that diminished from them. If you study Scripture, you'll notice that whenever we get into the presence of God, like Moses, when he went up on the mountain of God, he reflected the very glory of God. If you begin to study Scripture, you'll notice that when we return with Christ uh, in his glory, you'll notice that we return with, with our garments are bright and shining. There's something restored in Christ and in his presence that we don't have right now. So what they did was they hid they hid from, from, from themselves and from God what they thought was shameful, and it wasn't shameful at all. It was their heart that was condemning them. You know, I, I, it's interesting when you study the book of Genesis, when you go a few chapters down, you come to this uh, chapter, uh, chapter 10 and chapter 11. Chapter 11 is about the Tower of Babel. Chapter 10 is the builder architect, a man by the name of Nimrod. And the Tower of Babel was all about this, this huge tower that would reach to heaven, and it really was a religious item. It wasn't just a building structure. It was religion. The idea was, we're going to get up. We're going to be like God. We're going to be higher than God. And God came down and confused the languages, if you remember that story, because he said this, if the people are one, there will be no limit to what they can do. In other words, if we allow them to keep doing this, the capacity that man has, if they put their minds together, can be dangerous. Do you know that that's exactly what's going to happen in the, in the last days where the Bible says that there's going to be a one-world government, there's going to be a one-world rule, ruler? You can already see languages starting to move in the direction of English. We, our own example is right there in Abu Dhabi in our church plant there where they brought in 700 Western teachers to, te to change the whole educational system from Arabic to English. 
There are more English-speaking people in Chinese today than there are English-speaking people in America. Our world is moving. I came across an article I thought was interesting. It was in uh, one of the UK papers, and here's the headlines. One giant leap for mankind, a 13 billion euro ITER project makes breakthrough in the quest for nuclear fusion. So I read that, and I'm thinking, well, that's, that's just interesting to me. First of all, it's about $20 billion in U.S. currency, so it's a big project, no doubt about it. And this just came out uh, just on the 27th of April. Let me give you a couple of quotes that were found in that article. Here's the first one. It's the largest scientific collaboration in the world. In fact, the project is so complex that we even had to invent our own currency known as ITER unit of account. And I thought, well, that's interesting because we, we exchange currency worldwide all the time in a lot bigger currencies than that, than $20 uh, billion. Why do they have to create their own currency? And then I began to think, my, my, my prophetic brain began to think about that a little bit. And I thought, well, if you could control all the energy of the world and the only way you could get that energy was with an ITER currency, that would be very helpful. By the way, the word ITER is a Latin word that means the way. So if you want to go the way, remember Satan's a counterfeiter. He's always going to counterfeit everything God does. If you want to go the way in terms of power, you're going to go that way. Now, here's something else that's said, another quote. Nothing is left to chance in a project that has uh, uh, defiled potential Babel-like misunderstandings between the collaborating nations. And so they begin to refer back to the Tower of Babel, and the whole article is about bringing people back together on something that's very common. So there's 34 nations of the world, and they represent one half of the world's population. This project does. So it will produce temperatures well over 100 million degrees centigrade, many times hotter than the center of the sun. It's said that it will produce three times all the energy that's on planet Earth right now. There may be a reason we're not drilling for oil that we know is there. We see environmentalists saying, don't drill there, don't drill there, don't don't ruin our pristine environment. But with a consequence long term, could turn to something where someone controls all the energy sources and all the, all the, the solution goes back to this. And the Bible, see, addresses this on an, indivi- sin on an individual and on a bigger scale. So let's, go, let's talk about this. Where does sin come from? Well, I think, first of all, we have to know that sin comes from heaven. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, it says, A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon... Uh, and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He is cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now earlier in that chapter tells us one third of the angels fell away from God. So where did sin begin? Well, it began in the angelic beings in heaven, and Satan was thrown out. On earth, the Bible makes it pretty clear. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, so death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all men sinned. So how did sin come to us? It came through Adam and Eve. And as they made that choice, that sin, not only by our birth, but our nature, but even our choice, we become sinners. So the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no one who's righteous, not even one. 
Now, when we go and we start drilling down, we say, well, how do we deal with this thing? We're going to try to deal with the idea of sin um, because I think it is a neglected topic in Christianity today. We always want to talk about heaven. We want to talk about good stuff. We want to talk about family and all that. But, but at the heart of all this stuff is just what goes on inside of us called sin. There's an interesting scripture, and here's how the Bible classifies this idea of sin in Proverbs chapter 6. And he says, there's six things that the Lord hates. Can you imagine? And then he says, the seventh is like an abomination unto him. Now, there's a grouping of seven. It could have been this was in part that that origin of let's come up with, with seven deadly sins because God has already come up with seven right here in Proverbs. Look what he says. Uh, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to run to evil, a false witness who speaks lies. And then here's the seventh one, the abomination, and one who sows discard among the brothers. Now you can't take that list and and walk away from that going, you know what? I need to listen to what God has to say because he's warning me for a reason. He's not trying to keep me from fun. He's trying to direct me in the way of righteousness and goodness and love and purity. See, God created us, uh, and when you think about why does God permit sin, he permits sin so that we have, because uh, he allows it to happen, because we, he wants us to understand this idea of freedom of choice. Ecclesiastes has an interesting scripture. Truly this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You ever, you know, recently we've had this, uh, this great wave of new babies coming in our church. You know, in fact, we're getting ready to put together a, a group just in, a, in the next week or so of, of all the young families that, that have had a baby in the last year. And I think we counted up like 15 or 18 of them. And it really just goes back to December. So it's really been a bumper car year, all right? I don't see bumper crop, a bumper year. They're just like bumper cars driving around here and bumping into each other. But it was awesome. But, but you get that little baby, you look, they're so innocent, they're so sweet. God creates this beautiful little baby, and they grow up selfish. They grow up doing things you've never even taught them. How do they act like that? Why do they do that? I was just talking to a new dad. He goes, I don't get it. I've changed, I've fed, I've rocked, I've held, I've talked sweet things, and still they look at me and scream in my face. I said, they control you. They own you, and they know it. From birth, they know it. And deep down inside, they're, they're thinking this, and one day, everything you have will be mine. And they've sought out many schemes. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Look what God said to Adam. The Lord God said to, commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now there's freedom. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You think that when Adam and Eve took from that tree and they ate it, they said, Well, we didn't die. Look at us, we're fine. And yet something inside of the core of their being died. It was that capacity to understand, to relate, and to love God with all their heart. And you can feel the the consequences of sin in your own life, can't you? When you sin, and you sin and you say, I just feel a little bit separated from God. I feel like God's a long way off. 
And what that is is that, that, that sin that comes into our life, even as a Christian, what it does is it, it just crushes our spirit. It takes away our joy. And it makes God feel like he's a million miles away. And that's why the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God brings about that restoration. Also, this idea of moral responsibility. It's interesting, I was reading a transcript of C.S. Lewis's broadcast during World War II from the BBC. And it later became a book called Mere Christianity. Maybe some of you read that book. But listen to what he said in this one section in this broadcast. He said, good and evil both increase at compound interest. Good and evil, they increase. And the interest is compounding. That is why little decisions that you and I make every day are such infinite importance. Ever think about just little decisions you make being of great importance? Or you look at it and go, it's no big deal. What if every decision, every thought became of infinite importance in our life? The way that we look at each other, the way that we deal with each other, the way we think about one another, the way we speak, what if all of those had infinite importance in our life? The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. What if something you, a decision you made today about how you lived your life, what if that could make a huge difference in your life tomorrow? Because we never think about the consequences of sin, do we? We just think about what we want to do. We go about doing what we want to do, and what if it changed entirely? the whole perspective of my life, one, two, five months later or five years later. And look, read on with this. And apparently trivial indulgences in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. I grew up with a friend named John. If I wanted to get in trouble, all I had to do was call John. John was an expert in devising evil, I'm convinced. He would call me up, yeah, let's go do that. And every time I went out with John, we got in trouble. The problem was with John, he was so much fun. He made everything seem fun. And I always wanted to go out with John. And sure enough, every time I went out with John, but I, but I would get in trouble. But then I made a decision somewhere along the line. I said, you know what? I'm not going to hang out with John anymore i got to stay away from John because John gets me in trouble every single time. Now, I'm not guiltless. I'm right there with him agreeing, I'm, I, so I'm fault. I'm, I'm at fault just like John was. But John was not a good influence in my life. You know, when I pulled away from John was when the gospel began to come clear to me. It's when I began to turn to reading Scripture. I didn't know another Christian but I knew that John was not helping me, and I made this turn and this shift in my life, and I went in this direction of the Word of God. And through the Word of God, reading that, I came to a place to where I believed that Jesus died, buried, and rose from the dead. And I became a believer in Christ. And all of a sudden, this transform, transformation in my heart began to happen. And I began to see things differently. I began to see things from a God perspective. I didn't become perfect. Not perfect never will be. But I, I came to a place of understanding what it meant. I made a strategic decision in my life. John never made that decision. And today, he's in a state penitentiary. 
And I think back on that so many times. What if I had not made that strategic decision in my life? It was fun. It was high school, college fun stuff. It didn't seem like that big a deal, but it made all the difference in the world. Let's talk a little bit how does sin affect us in our life. Well, the Bible uses a number of words, but three primary words to describe sin. One of them is called missing the mark. It's the idea that God has a target out there, and and the analogy is you take an arrow and you shoot this arrow, and it doesn't quite hit the target. The Bible uses that particular word in Romans 3.23 when it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Your best effort is not going to get you to God. Your best effort is not going to get you forgiveness of sin. Second word, the transgression of the law. 1 John 3.4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Do you know that when I sin, even a white lie sin, I'm transgressing the law? God says, don't do that. When you do that, it will affect you. It will hurt you. And you want it, you'll want to get back. You say, well, isn't there forgiveness? Absolutely. But you know, damage is sometimes done. When I was uh, first pastoring my first church, I was in South Louisiana, and, and we had an auditorium like this, and if you've heard this story, just I apologize, but it's such a classic story. And in the back, we had two classrooms for children. And while I'm preaching, I hear somebody banging, hammering back there, and I'm thinking, what is going on? No one's stopping it. Everybody's just thinking, yes, someone's hammering. Nobody ever thinks, I think I should go stop the hammering, right? And everybody's disturbed by it. I get done, I go back there before the second service, and I said to this guy who was the teacher, I said, what are you doing? And I see a two-by-four with nails in it and holes where they've taken nails out. And I said, what are you guys doing back here? I'm trying to preach. Oh, I'm teaching them about sin. What are you doing? And he says, well, I give them all a nail and a hammer. And I have them pound that nail into that piece of wood. And they can pound it in a little bit or all the way. Some of them hit it so hard down in it, they create like a a hole and they, they can't even get a hold of the nail. They have to turn it over and bang it out the other way. Some of them bend it and it's just a mess. But they all try to pull them out. And I say, okay, that nail is sin in your life. And that wood is your life. And every time you drive sin into your life, it leaves a mark. You can take the sin out. You can pull the nail out. But there's always something there that you are affected by. So sin is transgressing the law. It is missing the mark. But James also says it's failing to do good. You know, sometimes we always think about sin as something I do that's wrong. What about the failure to do good? Have you had those moments where you just knew it was right to do something? I was walking out of the grocery store. I was really busy the other day, and, and there was a lady there, and she was trying to maneuver. She was an older lady. She was trying to maneuver her groceries, and I was in a hurry, and I thought she's, my mind, this is how my mind went. That lady maneuvers groceries every week. You don't need to help her. That lady needs to keep doing what she's doing so she can do it when she's 100. I mean, this is where my mind's going. And it's like this scripture came back to me, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. And I stopped and I said, hey, can I help you with that? And I pushed a little cart out, loaded it in her car. She was thankful. She really could have done it without me. But you see, the issue was not whether she could do it. It was I was going to do what was right. And every one of us, when we, get, when we find ourselves in those contexts of, of people, we know what's right. We know what to say when it's right. We know when we've said something that's wrong. 
And we, we have to pull back and say, I want to do what is good and I want to do what is right. What does sin do in our life? Well, sin disrupts harmony. The divorce rate in Orange County at first marriages is 72%. It's the highest in the nation. It disrupts harmony. Sin also brings shame and guilt to our life. You never sin and go, I feel so good about that sin. It was such a wonderful sin. I can't wait to do it again. Sin causes emotional pain. It takes everything out of, out of perspective in your life. And you start to have this emotional weight. You know, when David had, had committed this sin with Bathsheba, you know, he said, even my bones ache. There was no sweet voice. There was no sweet sound. Everything was hurting. Sin divides relationships. When sin comes in, people don't want to communicate. People don't want to get along. Sin changes the way we think. We don't think correctly. You know, emotions are not logical. Have you ever been in one of those situations where, you know, things are really hyped up emotionally? Have you ever noticed how nobody's really logical? Well, well just, let's make sense of this. No, no, I don't want to make sense. I'm just, I'm just upset. It affects the way we think. It affects future generations. Do you know that, that, that your, your sin doesn't just hurt you, it hurts your kids and your children's children? It has a big, big effect on our world. Because our kids tend to start doing some things that we do or they overreact and they do different things. And we have to take responsibility for our own sin. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame someone else. You can't blame your circumstances. You have to say, you know what? If I, do, if I fail to do what is right and good, it's me. I have to own it. I have to ask forgiveness. And I have to seek the cleansing of God himself. And then sin brings death. Initially, spiritual death, but the reason we physically die too is because we are sinners. That God wanted, when God created us, he created us so that we could live eternally, and yet, what did we do? We chose sin. Our forefathers chose sin, and we choose sin. And so it makes that change point in our life. You see, sin will rob you of your future. Don't let that happen. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10, it says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Jensen Franklin put it like this, If you lose your joy, then you lose your strength. If you lose your strength, you lose your power to resist the enemy. And if you lose your power to resist the enemy, he will have you for lunch. Everything about joy. Here's what the, Jesus said to the disciples. My joy do I give unto you. Not as the world gives, but I give it unto you. That my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. You see, when you think about how courageous it is just to stand up and do what is right, it's a game changer in your life. You see, when the spine of one man stiffens, it strengthens the spine of a hundred men. There are time, these are the days we live in. These are the days when we call out for courage and great faith. The kingdom is being auctioned cheap at the, to the lowest bidder by those who politely acknowledge God and his promises, but then live their life as though God needed their help. He does not need us. We need him. He is the high and lofty one, the one who is exalted and majestic in, in the heavens, and his presence and his person is what we need and what we desire. 
We need to pause periodically and just say, God, may your presence fall right now. May I feel the movement of your spirit right now. And if you pray that prayer, even even as I'm speaking, you're going to sense the presence of God because God shows up miraculously in our life. T.D. Jake said this, you face your greatest opposition when you're closest to your biggest miracle. We need to be reminded you can be in the middle of a miracle and not even know it. God can be doing something right now and is doing something in your life that you can't even imagine how great it is. Matt Chandler said this, the gospel frees us to be authentic, to admit our struggles and our strengths have not been fully sanctified, to allow others to apply the grace of God to areas of our lives that desperately need it. When community is honest and authentic, people began to experience and lead others to experience freedom from wearing a mask. You know the thing we need to be reminded of? Every one of us need the grace of God. Amen? Every one of us need to extend grace to one another. Reach out and touch people and let their lives feel the grace of God because it's so different. It's so different. I did a wedding yesterday, and at that wedding, I encountered a lot of people that I didn't know, and it was amazing. You know, the minute they find out you're a pastor, you know, they straighten up. It's really funny, you know, and, and usually they straighten up after they've said something they wish they hadn't said. And I don't judge them. I just, they'll say something, say, hey, you know, no big deal, you know, uh, because I'm not there to judge them. I'm there to present Jesus. I'm there to present love. I'm there to present grace. The the life-changing job, that's Jesus' job, amen? My job is just to be somehow a tool of grace in people's lives, to minister to them. Let me give you a few life applications. Here's the first one. God's grace is not limited. It's not God's permission to sin. God's grace is not God's permission to sin. Because God's a lot of grace, you can't just say, well, I can just go do what I want to do. Also, remember the most comfortable pillow is a clean conscience. You want to sleep well? Deal with stuff in your life. Seek forgiveness. Seek love. Seek grace. Give people the favor of God that they can experience that. And then turning from sin is really just a decision. And I really believe that today every one of us could probably find an area in our life where we'd say, you know, I need to make a decision to turn away from that to turn after God because the difference is death and life I'm going to ask you to to stand with me as we pray Father as we pray God we deal have dealt with really a kind of a heavy subject today the subject of what goes on in our head what goes on in our heart and God The Holy Spirit, you right now can minister to each one of us. And you are ministering to us and you're showing us some stuff. Maybe it's a relationship. You need to just just ask God to forgive or to restore. Maybe you need to ask God just to kind of heal your heart from some pain you've gone through. Maybe you need to ask God for just purity of thought. You need to allow God to just do something fresh in your heart. Maybe it's somebody you came with today. And on the outside, you're looking like all is well, but inside there's, there's tension. 
and there's a problem. There's a lack of grace. Would you commit right now where you stand, where you sit, just to say, Holy Spirit of God, give me the grace of forgiveness now. Give me the grace to just extend grace. Heal that relationship. Bring about wholeness of being in our life. Let me live out the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As we sing together, as we worship together, let this be a time where you go to the altar of God and you give him your life, you give him your all, and you recommit your life to Jesus. If you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, would you do that today? Would you call on his name?